Good, good morning, Cornerstone Bible Church, and for anyone who's visiting with us this morning, it is a blessing to be with you on this Sunday. Looking forward to next Sunday and celebrating Jesus's resurrection from the dead. But really, we look forward to every Sunday because every Sunday is the Lord's Day when we remember what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. If you have your Bibles with you, please open them to Romans 5. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 5 this morning. And then, Lord willing, on Friday night, our Good Friday service, we'll be looking at verses 6 through 8. Go ahead and open to Romans 5, 1 through 5. If there's one thing that has um, a word that has been repeated many times in these recent weeks, it has been uncertainty. Uncertainty. There's many things that we are uncertain about, from the serious to the trivial. We're uncertain whether the NBA season will finish. Now, for Lakers fans, that may not be a trivial thing. We're also uncertain over much more serious things, though. Will someone I know get the the coronavirus, or will I get it? Or how bad will it actually be when someone I know gets it? Will I be laid off? Will I have a job when this time is over? What is going to happen to the economy? What will happen to my kid's school year? Will I get to walk at graduation? What will happen to our summer plans that we had scheduled? When will life get back to normal? Will there be a new normal? When will we be able to worship together again at 112 East Walnut Avenue? It's great to worship with you this morning, but I know we're all looking forward to being out of my kitchen and back together. It's a time of uncertainties. There's much that we don't know. But this morning, I want your hearts to be refreshed, and I want your joy to be refueled by five certainties, which are the result of a right relationship with God through Jesus Christ. We're going to look at five certainties that are a result of a right relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And so if you are right with God this morning, these certainties are, are essential for you to navigate this time of uncertainty with joy that is pleasing to God, with thankfulness and with humility and with hope. And if you are here this morning and you're not right with God, you're still facing certainty of an eternity apart from him. It doesn't have to be that way, though. We're going to see this morning how if you're not right with God, that you can become right with him through faith in Jesus Christ. We're going to see as following the, that, that these five certainties can be yours, too, so that all of you this morning, because of God's grace, through justification, through faith, can be right with God. If you have your Bibles, go to Romans 5. I'm going to read verses 1 through 5. I'll be reading from the New American Standard Bible. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we exalt in hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we also exalt in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope, and hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has given to us. Please pray with me. Now, Father, we thank you for your great grace in preserving your word for us. We thank you, Father, for those of us who are saved, that we have your spirit in us, and that your spirit in us uh, uses your word to bring us hope in the midst of uncertainty. So, Father, as we are living in these uncertain times, Father, I pray that your word would be particularly encouraging to those who have been declared righteous by you, who have that right standing before you, Lord. And I do pray, Father, that what we look at this morning would be so thrilling to our hearts, Lord, that that that, that joy would burst forth from us, Lord, and that really the way that we uh, handle these times of uncertainty would be transformed because of this increasing dominance in our hearts of this good news, Lord. 
I do pray, Father, for those who are listening this morning who are not confident that they are right with you, who indeed have a concern that if they were to die, they'd be separated forever from you. Lord, that they would see with clarity what it means to be justified by faith, Lord, and and this offer of reconciliation through Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that your word would have its effect in our hearts this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Paul begins in Romans 5, verse 1, saying, Therefore, having been justified by faith, and the five certainties we're going to look at this morning follow in verses one that follow in verses one through five are a result of having been justified by faith. So in order to get to these certainties, we have to understand first with clarity, what does it mean to be justified by faith? We're going to we have to ask ourselves two questions to get there. What does it mean to be justified by faith? And the second question is, have I been justified by faith? So let's look at the first question. What does it mean to be justified by faith? And as we answer these questions, we're going to get into those five certainties next. So what does it mean to be justified by faith? It means to be declared righteous, to be declared right, to be declared by God that you are someone who has not broken his law. And instead, that you are someone who has kept his law perfectly. And that's what it means to be righteous, not to be a law breaker, but a law keeper. To be pronounced by God both not guilty and law-keeping. Now, I'm sure you can see the challenge of being called not guilty. If a young child comes into your room covered in chocolate, their face and their hands are just covered in chocolate, and you ask them, did you find the Easter bunnies I'd stored away? And they say, no. You'll have great difficulty saying to them, I know you've obeyed me. You're righteous. It'd be impossible, right? And that's what God's word makes clear. That In a sense, it is impossible. We'll talk about how you can be. That in a sense, God's word is clear that, is that no one is righteous. We all have, so to speak, stolen chocolate melted on our faces. That's really what chapters 1 through 3 of Romans is, is about. It builds the case that every person deserves God's judgment. Romans 3 verses 10 through 11 is just one snippet. It says, as it is written, there's none righteous, not even one. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks for God. The book of Romans is also clear that no one can make themselves righteous through obedience. That child couldn't uneat that chocolate. Not eating chocolate in the future, never stealing Easter bunnies again, won't change the fact that that child still ate chocolate. I know it's just a picture, but Romans 3.20 describes some of that. It says, because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. No flesh, no person will be declared righteous in God's sight by works of the law. For through the law comes knowledge of sin. The law reveals that we are lawbreakers, not law keepers. That we are in need of righteousness, not that we are righteous. The only way to be declared righteous, to be declared right before God is through faith in Jesus Christ. Romans 3, verses 22 to 24 says, Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there's no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the only way to be made right is being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Through Jesus paying the penalty for our sin. That is the only way we can be justified. We can be declared righteous is by his grace as a gift through faith. Jesus has paid the penalty for for sinners who've broken God's law. Jesus has obeyed that law perfectly. See, we can't earn justification. We can't buy it. We can't barter for it. We can't trade for it. We don't have God's currency. We can't sneak into heaven thinking that our infractions of God's law are, are only minor. Or their misdemeanors, they're not that bad. God the Father sent God the Son to become man, to obey the law perfectly, to die unjustly, a, a death he didn't deserve, to suffer the punishment instead that sinners deserve, 
to rise from the dead, which we get to celebrate next weekend, so that sinners can be justified, so that they can be declared right with God. Not lawbreakers, but law keepers. Romans 4.25 says, He, referring to Jesus, was delivered over because of our transgressions, because of our sins, and was raised for because of our justification. Jesus was raised to life so that you can be justified. Romans 5.1, which launches into this morning's passage, begins, Therefore, having been justified by faith. And that one phrase, justified by faith, summarizes everything that's taken so place in Romans 1-4. through 4. The only way one becomes justified, becomes right with God, is by believing God's offer to justify the ungodly through faith in Christ. That is how you this morning, if you're not right with God, if you are afraid of death, if you know that if you were to stand before God, you would be sent to hell for your disobedience to him. The only way you can be made right is through faith in Jesus Christ. And that offer is for you this morning. If you have not put your faith in Jesus Christ, come to him. He is willing. God is willing to justify you if you put your hope only in him. That leads us to our second question. The first question is, what does it mean to be justified by faith? And the second is, have you been justified by faith? Have you been declared righteous by God? Welcome into his presence. See, only sinners will be made righteous. Have you come to God understanding your desperate need for righteousness? That all of that all you have earned for your efforts, for, for, for everything that you deserve is ultimately judgment and hell? That he would be right to send you to hell? Have you admitted that you are unworthy of being declared righteous? Are you willing to leave behind your unrighteousness and you are willing to turn your back and do things your way? Are you willing to go and say, yes, God, I will do them your way. All I've earned for my effort is, is, is the punishment I deserve. Have you put all your faith in Jesus's obedience? His obedience, which satisfies God's law. And if you put all your faith in Jesus's death, which satisfies God's demand for punishment, have you said, my only hope is Jesus Christ? Have you been justified through faith as God declared you? You are now righteous. Welcome into my presence. Can you say emphatically, yes, God has declared me not guilty. That's good news. That's, that's why Christ came, so that you can be declared not guilty. If you have been justified by faith, you experience the uncertainties of this life in a completely different way. Really, for you, life in this world, which is still fallen, which is still waiting for God to remake it and to make it again perfectly, your experience of this world is completely different because of that good news of being made right with God through faith in Jesus Christ. While around you is uncertainty, you can have certainty if you've been justified by faith in Jesus Christ. And this morning, Romans 5, verses 1 through 5. We're going to see five certainties which follow justification by faith. And I know it took us a while to get there, but that's because uh, Paul starts with such a big beginning. He says in that verse one, therefore, because of having been justified by faith, and then he launches into the certainties that follow. So if you've been justified by faith, here's the first certainty. You have the certainty of peace. You have the certainty of peace with God. If you've been justified by faith, you have the certainty of peace. Romans 5, 1 continues. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace is the end of hostility. We were rebels. We were involved in a losing battle against God. We were opposed to his reign. We were seeking to overthrow the king of the universe, our creator. We were spiritual anarchists we were really we were law-defying pirates instead of thieving gold we were thieving glory from god glory that belonged to god all of our lives were about our freedom and our independence and getting what we wanted for ourselves and that's why there's such bad news in romans 1 8 
For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. That's why God's wrath is coming because of what we were like, because of our hostility towards God. But now, it says, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And again, it is through our Lord Jesus Christ. It is not through our effort. It's not through our merits, not through our feelings of contrition, not through our acts of penance, but only through faith, through our Lord Jesus Christ. See, we had real guilt against our creator. We had reason to be disturbed. We had reason to fear. We had reason to not sleep at night. And if you are not right with Jesus Christ, you have reason to be afraid. See, we had, we, until the stain of our sin is bleached out, until we are clean, we know that there's no hiding from God. We are at his mercy to keep our heart beating one second longer. But Christ dealt with on the cross all that would separate us from God. Colossians 1.20 talks about the reconciliation we have with God through Jesus Christ. Colossians 1.20 says, Through him, through Jesus, to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. When Jesus died on the cross, he took the punishment of sinners so that we can be reconciled to God, so that there's no longer beef with God, there's no hostility with God. The hostility has been removed and war criminals are adopted as children. But the Jewish idea of peace is more than the end of hostility. Peace is also the flourishing that follows the end of hostility. It's the goodness and the well-being, the blessing that follows the end of war. And Jesus is not the, just the beginning of our peace with God. He's the guarantor of eternal peace with God. Isaiah verses 9, 6 through 7 describes Jesus, the prophesied Messiah, as the Prince of Peace. Isaiah 9 verses 6 and 7 says, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. That peace is just going to keep flourishing for eternity on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. We have nothing to look forward to except unending peace and blessing. And I don't mean just kind of peace as in tranquility and boredom. I mean the fullness of the blessing of the God of the universe bestowed upon us. In God's promise to Israel, he promises a covenant of peace, a relationship characterized, unbroken by peace. In Ezekiel 37, verses 24 to 27, I'm going to read some of that. Ezekiel 37, verses 24 to 27. My servant David, he's talking about the prophesied Messiah, will be king over them. And they will all have one shepherd. And they will walk in my ordinances and keep my statues and observe them. That's part of the peace that comes with Jesus Christ is that we love obedience. Verse 26 says, I will make a covenant of peace with them. It will be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will place them and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. My dwelling place also will be with them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. And that is the foundation of our peace we get to enjoy forever with God through Jesus Christ. Peace forever. Jesus Christ is both our wrath-satisfying sacrifice and our eternally reigning shepherd. Through him, we enjoy peace with God now, and we'll experience nothing but peace in the eternal state. Not the peace of kind of some monks in a mountain meditating and chanting and trying to lose themselves in some ohms. This is the peace of God's people, made in God's image, enjoying working in the presence of a perfect king who forever blesses their labors. It's in a beautiful, eternal peace, the kind of the, the, the snippet we get of in, 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 in Genesis 1 and 2 before the fall. That peace, but knowing that we are in Christ, not in heaven, in Christ, forever capable of sinning ever again. That's the peace we have to look forward to. Now, we enjoy that peace with God now. It's not just a feeling of peace. 
It is the reality of peace. The weapons of our warfare against God have been destroyed. The borders have been torn down. Peace is God's perpetual universal kingdom. And we look forward to being forever there with him. That's our first certainty. Our first certainty is that if you've been justified by faith, you have the certainty of peace. And let's look at our second certainty. If you've been justified by faith, the first is you have the certainty of peace. The second is you have the certainty of grace. You have the certainty of peace and you have the certainty of grace. Let's look at that in verse two, the first part of it. Through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we now stand. Through whom grace like peace is through Christ, only through Christ and forever through Jesus Christ. Now the new American standard translates this word, uh, 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 it, it says we have obtained our, our introduction by faith. The ESV says, says access. So whether it is our introduction into grace or our access into grace, the, the word introduction includes the idea that we're not getting there on our own. We need to be ushered into grace. We need to be introduced into grace. We just can't walk into God's presence. We have to be to be introduced there. But I do like the word access too, because we don't want to lose sight of the fact that, that this access into grace is an ongoing benefit. Our, our, our introduction into grace is not a backstage pass that gets you into grace once. This, this introduction, this access we have is the start of our eternal stay in grace. It's not an Airbnb of grace. It's not a starter home of grace. It's our dream home of grace. It's a mansion of grace. It's our eternal dwelling of grace. There's no moving on from grace through Jesus Christ. It says into this grace in which we stand. And through Christ, every obstacle to our enjoying grace has been removed. And that's incredible to think about. Through Christ, our every obstacle to enjoying grace has been removed. The sin which deserved hell was paid for. The law which demanded perfection has been obeyed. And now we are welcome in grace. We are free to stand in grace. We are fixed in grace. We are unmoved in grace. We are citizens of the realm of grace. Where once sin reigned, now grace reigns. Where once we were under law, now we are under grace. It's more than just we enjoy the brightness of God's smile. God's grace is active toward us. Those who stand in God's grace have God's unrestrained power, accomplishing God's omniscience-informed best for them for the rest of eternity. Those who stand in grace have God's unrestrained power with no limits on his power, accomplishing God's omniscience-informed best, everything that he knows is best for you for the rest of eternity. That's what it means to stand in grace. God will never have a, a misstep of grace. He won't misspend his grace. Every penny of grace is perfectly and flawlessly deployed toward your good and his glory for eternity. Now, this enjoyment of grace is only by faith, not by works. If we could work our way to God, if it were upon us, standing in grace would be, by the definition of grace, impossible. It would be instead, we have some kind of entrance into standing in what we deserve. That is standing in hell, brothers and sisters. That's what we deserve in ourselves. No, standing in grace is by definition rejects any works on our part to get there. It is all through Jesus Christ by faith. Through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we now stand. See, we bring nothing to the table. Our pockets are empty. We were not only morally bankrupt, but we owed an infinite debt. An eternity in hell would be insufficient, ins insufficient to pay the debts that we owe God for our sin. 
And that is why hell is eternal, because it can never be paid. The only way for that payment to be made is through faith in Jesus Christ, through him taking the punishment that we deserve. And those who have been justified by faith stand in this grace. We stand in grace, perpetual grace, unfettered grace, amazing grace. Why? Because it was in God's eternal heart that we should be here, that we should be at home in his courts of grace. Praise him. That is certainty in uncertain times. The certainty is if you've been justified by faith, you have the certainty of peace. If you've been justified by faith, you have the certainty of grace. And third, if you have been justified by faith, you have the certainty of glory. You have the certainty of glory. We see that in the second half of verse 2 of Romans 5. It says, and we exalt in the hope of the glory of God. The biblical word for hope, it doesn't mean a wish for something, like, like I hope we get to leave our homes someday. But confidence in, in something you haven't received. It's something you, 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 you have grounds for expecting. You have confidence you're going to get this. It's not the hope a, a child may have of getting married one day. Instead, it is more like the expectation the bride and groom have on the wedding day. In fact, on the wedding day at the church, as they're already in their uh, suit or in their dress, that they're confident they're going to leave the church married. Now, ideally, there's not a lot of, of suspense on wedding day. If either spouse is going to say, I do, you know, they're confident they're going to leave this day married. See, this hope that we're talking about is even more solid than that hope, because that hope is still dependent on what fickle humans will say or do. This is certainty in what God will do, and what God ultimately has done. See, God never learns anything new at the last minute to make him change his mind. This hope is confident hope. It is the hope of the glory of God. Now, this could be confidence that we are going to see the glory of God, that we're going to see his beauty and his brightness, that we're going to see him revealing his infinite worth to us, brighter than any sun. And that is a confident hope that we have, that we're going to participate in God's glory. But most commentaries see this as more than a hope that we're going to see. This is a hope of what we will be. This is a hope not of just of what we will see, but of what we will be. It's confidence that God will transform you who have been justified by faith from your likeness to sinful Adam, who fell short of the glory of God, to Christ-likeness, to conformity to Jesus Christ, to conformity to the new Adam, who perfectly glorified the Father. That is the hope of the glory of God, that we're going to be made like Jesus Christ, that we're going to be morally perfect, that our every appetite will be pure, that we'll have no coveting left in us, that we will be perfectly disgusted by, by even the thought of sin, that we will have a flawless appraisal of God's beauty and his goodness, that we will be forever happily transfixed upon God, that we will wake to work for him with, 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 with a smile. That's just a little bit of what it means to be made in Christ's image. One commentator says, it's the godlikeness which was lost because of sin, the shattered image restored. And that's what the hope of glory is. And that hope of glory is promised later in Romans chapter 8. In Romans chapter 8, like verses 17 and 18. It says, if we indeed suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. So those who suffer with him are glorified with him. For I consider, verse 18 of Romans 8, that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. These sufferings are nothing compared to the glory that we're going to get to enjoy of being made like Jesus Christ. Romans 8, verse 21, later in chapter 8. The creation itself, talking talk about the physical creation, the earth and the, the universe and everything that's been marred by sin, itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption 
into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. That as Christ's children are transformed into the glory of God, all of creation will be fixed. In Romans 8.30, those that God has predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. He's declared not guilty. And those whom he's justified, he also glorified. If you have been justified through faith in Christ Jesus, you will be glorified to become like Christ Jesus. Colossians 1.27 describes this in a few words just gloriously. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Not the wishing for future glory. The certainty of glory is Christ in you. It is your union with Christ Jesus. The certainty of glorification or Colossians 3 verse 4. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, when he returns, Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. We'll be made like Jesus Christ. That's Colossians 3, 4. And listen to Philippians 3 verse 21. Describes how God will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. Christ will transform the body of our humble state, our current bodies, into conformity with the body of his glory. Talking about our physical bodies, but also the, 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 the everything that is yet to be transformed after the fall, after our salvation, after our justification, by the exertion of the power that he has, even to subject all things to himself. That power that Christ has to rule over the universe is going to be directed toward us when we see him to bring us to glory. And that is the certainty we have. That is the certainty of glory, the confidence of that glory that's going to come. And that's why uh, Paul, he says, we exalt in the hope of the glory, exalt. Uh, in the glory of God, or in the ESV, it says rejoice. We exalt. We rejoice in the midst of all of the uncertainties of life. We exalt and we rejoice. Now, this word can be used in a negative way as boasting. Right? We take pride in something. You can boast in something that you've done. You can pat yourself on the back for your accomplishment. Kind of like a a a a football player who does an amazing catch or something and he does a little dance in the end zone that that is boasting but this word can also be used to exalt or to rejoice in a privilege that's been given to you for which you've done nothing it's like being handed a a, a lottery ticket that you know is a winning lottery ticket that the, the, the numbers match up but you've been given this lottery ticket by someone who at one point you just hate it you didn't want anything to do with them. And you didn't think of purchasing a lottery ticket. You didn't pay for the lottery ticket. You didn't pick out the winning numbers on the lottery ticket. You would never do the same for that person, but they give you this winning lottery ticket. Well, can you boast in that? You can't boast in that, but you can exalt in that. You can rejoice in that. And that is what Paul's saying here. We exalt in this certainty of the glory of God, we exalt in what our transformation is going to be. We exalt in what we will be when we see Christ. We exalt that we will be 100% pleasing to God. That we will always delight in God's presence. That we will never be bored by him. We exalt that we will be perfect appraisers of God's beauty. That we will understand his holiness. That we will find perfect pleasure in fulfilling God's commands to us. That we will fulfill them with eagerness for eternity. We exalt that we will be God's unique and each of us will be unique. We'll each be a, a, a creature crafted by him. We'll be God's unique masterpiece capturing in each of us the image of Christ. And I don't exactly know what that's going to be like. Each of us is going to be a unique piece of work whose beauty comes from its likeness to Christ. But each of them are going to be done in their own style. There's going to be, a, there's going to be an, an Isaiah style and a Hyun style and a France style. They're each, they're each going to be individuals, but all of them are going to be made conform to the image of Christ. And the only one who gets attention in that is God himself because he's the artist. 
that's the certainty we have to look forward to. So I know we're going through a lot of uncertainty now, uncertainty about, about viruses and uncertainty of jobs and uncertainties about what we're going to find when we go to the grocery store. But those who've been justified by faith have this, this certainty of peace, and they have a certainty of standing in grace, and they have a certainty of the hope of glory. You also, number four, if you've been justified by faith, have certainty that trials are purposeful. You have certainty that trials are purposeful. Romans 5 verses 3 and 4 says, and not only this, not only do we exalt in the hope of the glory of God, but we exalt in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. And perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope. See, you have certainty that your trials, that your tribulations are purposeful. See, being justified by God transforms our experiences of, of tribulations, or ESV as the word sufferings. The, the verb maybe behind, behind this word means to be pressed, to be squashed, to be hemmed in, to be narrow, to be squeezed. The, 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 the noun has the idea of pressure. And you know what those pressures of life are. This word can, can, can refer to the, the severe testing or the persecution of one's allegiance to Christ. And maybe that, that, that word of that word tri tribulation captures that. But it can also be used of all of life's pressures. Anything which causes distress or sorrow is true of the deepest sufferings we face but also of those that are lighter. The, 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 the trials of out-of-stock items at the grocery store or going along on your calendar of the next month and, and having to mark things out that you'd planned on. Sure, that suffering isn't the same intensity as being disowned by your family for Christ, but any of those kinds of things, any suffering, any pressure, you have to say, does this come from a good God? And when we are tempted to doubt that God's goodness, whether it's because of a flat tire or, or, or out of milk, when you're tempted to question the goodness of God, it, it is a kind of, of distress, a suffering, a squeezing. So how do we respond to those? Well, those who have been declared righteous by God no longer need to fear hardship. And you don't need to fear that that is punishment from an angry God. See, God is not at odds with those with whom he's at peace. The justified don't need to fear that God's at odds with them, and neither do they need to rationalize that God would never let bad things happen to his people. See, the justified don't need to do that. They can do something different. They can exalt in their tribulations. And Paul means that to surprise you. He wants you to be shocked. Exalting in the hope of the glory of God, I get it. And then he says, and not only this, but we also exalt in our tribulations. Ouch, Paul. Exalt in our tribulations? See, how, how are we going to exalt in our tribulations? He just doesn't say during hardships. But in the hardships themselves, exalt in our tribulations. Now, this isn't a sense that we love experiencing faint, a pain or disappointment or suffering. We're not supposed to say, oh, this loneliness is awesome. I love this. Or, you know, I can't wait to go through more suffering. I can't wait to get my next tooth pulled. Paul isn't talking about anything like that. See, exalting in tribulation requires knowledge. It requires knowledge. First of all, we do have to be convinced that our suffering has been dispensed to us by a sovereign God. A sovereign God with whom we've been reconciled, who has control over the universe, who has enough power to protect us from any suffering if he wanted to. So we have to look at our sufferings as coming from the hand of a sovereign God with whom we've been reconciled. But Paul goes on here. He says, we must become convinced. So he says, 
that we exalt in our tribulations, knowing, knowing it takes conviction, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. It brings about endurance. See, stead, steadfastness, endurance, perseverance, the, the ability to bear up under is made stronger by suffering. Steadfastness, endurance is cultivated in the garden of distress. The fruit of perseverance is sown in the fields of disappointment. I know many of you are going through a lot of disappointment. Patience is the pattern of God's people when they are pressed, when they are squeezed. God's people demonstrate patience, maybe not perfectly, maybe not at every instance, but over time they persevere, they endure. Kids sometimes in classes have projects of making bridges. And you know you can judge how strong that bridge is by how much weight it holds. That is what endurance is. That's what's, what, what perseverance is. It's the strength of a bridge to bear up under pressure. We exalt in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. God has a purpose, and that purpose is perseverance. But perseverance is not the end in itself. Perseverance is not the final goal. We must also know that endurance brings about proven character. It says, and perseverance brings about proven character. Proven character is the result of being tested. It's the approved, being approved on the basis of a trial. As we persevere, we demonstrate that we are in Christ, that we are those who have been justified by faith. Suffering is an acid test that, that, that separates true gold from fool's gold. Right, do you have true faith in Christ or do you have a, 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 some kind of fake faith in Christ, a faith that falls away? Well, suffering is the test that God uses. As we endure, we see our, our, our character proven. We see to whom we belong. And as, as our faith continues, so does our confidence that we have been justified. In these, myths, in, in these hard times, we continue in our faith in Jesus Christ. But it doesn't stop there. Proven character does something else. So it says we exalt in tribulations and the tribulation brings about perseverance and perseverance in verse four, proven character. And at the end of verse four, proven character leads to hope. Proven character is not even the final goal. It's proven character brings about the hope. And that hope is what we've already seen in verse two of the glory of God. We've done, we've come Full circle. We exalt in the glory of God, but then we exalt in the tribulations that produce perseverance, that produce proven character, that bring us back to the, we're going to get that hope. That hope is going to be my hope. I am going to be transformed when Christ comes because I am persevering in the midst of trials. Having seen, seen God's power to transform us in this life, we are confident that God will finish that transformation when Christ returns. The first blossoms of spring promise a harvest in summer. And that's what our perseverance is. The fullness is coming when Christ returns. The smell of dinner simmering promises that we're going to be satisfied. And the first rays of dawn promise a new day. And that's what happens when we go through tribulation. We exalt. We exalt in them because we are persevering. And persevering is showing our character. And character is convincing us that that hope is my hope. So we can say in a sense, bring on the tribulation, Lord. Not because we have some masochistic pleasure in, in being hurt, but because of what it's accomplishing for us. Because we are more certain of that glory and more certain of that grace, more certain of that peace, and more certain that we've been justified through faith in Jesus Christ. The justified will be glorified. Philippians 1.6. Philippians 1.6 says, I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. And that's how God uses tribulation, trials, the squeezing of life, everything that's happened this last month to, to squeeze you so that you are perfect when Christ returns. So this is why we exalt in our tribulations. Why we see the privilege of being distressed, 
why we rejoice while enduring, why, why we're happy to be pottery that's, that, that, that is, is being baked in God's fiery kiln of trials. Because God's plan is to affirm the certainty of his glory through trials. And this is why we can have certainty that trials are purposeful. So we've looked at four certainties so far that follow having been justified by faith. We have the certainty of peace, the certainty of grace, the certainty of glory, the certainty that trials are purposeful. And the fifth is, if you've been justified by faith, you have certainty of hope through God's love. Certainty of hope through God's love. And let's look at verse 5. Paul says, hope does not disappoint. Because, and here's why that hope does not disappoint, the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Verse 5 begins, hope does not, does not disappoint, or ESV as hope does not put to shame. How do you know that when you die and go before God that you won't be embarrassed? How do you know that you won't come up short? That you won't be excluded from God's presence. How do you know that the doors of heaven won't be locked to you? How do you know that you won't be exposed as a fraud who didn't have saving faith? How do you know that you'll be exposed as one who never had been justified? How do you know that you won't be cast out where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth? Well, scripture has more than one answer to that question. We've already seen one answer, verses three through four. It's why we rejoice in our trials, because trials has a proving effect that we are those who are going to have that hope of glory. Another answer is that believers who've been justified by faith have an increasing pattern of doing what Jesus says. Their lives have been marked by obedience. They have built their lives on the rock. They are those who listen and obey. They are those who produce a uh, harvest, as you think about the, the parable of the sower. They are those who love the brethren, as you think about First John, who practice righteousness. So they are those who obey. But there's another answer in verse 5. How you know that your hope in Jesus Christ is true hope. We have certainty that we won't be ashamed. And the next word is because, which is just such an interesting thing that Paul does here. Hope does not disappoint. Your hope won't disappoint. It won't leave you... Uh, ashamed, you won't be like the emperor in new clothes. You, you won't appear before God undressed because, and here's why, the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who is given to us. God's people have the indwelling, permanent presence of God's Spirit. God the Father sends his Spirit to be with his people, and this Holy Spirit quickens us. He gives us new life so we can respond to the gospel. But then after we respond to the gospel, to this promise of being justified through faith, the Holy Spirit pours God's love into our hearts. This is God's love for us. And he does so with generosity because the love of God has been poured. And that word pouring, it's not a, a, a trickle, as one commentator says. God's love is not rationed out drop by drop. Here, here, have a little dab of God's love. It is abundant love. It is extravagantly poured out. He doesn't count out M&Ms one by one. I found out that a serving size is 32 M&Ms. That's important because I can eat them by the fistful. So serving size is 32. Well, God doesn't count out M&Ms of his love and put them into your hand one by one. He has you put out your hands and he overflows your hands. That's how much love he gives. Your little hands can't hold the amount of love that God pours out. Our hearts overflow with the Father's love for us. Now, Paul talks about this again later in Romans using, using different language of the same idea in Romans 8.16. The Spirit, God's Spirit himself, testifies with our spirit that we are the children of God. We know that we've been justified by faith because God's Spirit in us testifies that we have. And that testimony is that we cry out to God, Father. Galatians 4.6 says, because you are sons, 
because of this work of, of, of justification, because God has adopted you following justification, because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. It's not just the spirit that cries, Abba, Father. It's the spirit in our hearts working so that we cry, Abba, Father, so that we say, God, creator of the universe, you are my father. That's what it means to have God's love poured into our hearts. That's how we know that we're not going to be disappointed by hope. See, God the Father is not some, some sentimental Santa Claus kind of God whom we kind of hope has some toy-bringing affection for us as long as we're not too naughty. Well, I hope he'll let me sit on his lap and hear my wish list and give me some of the things in this life that I like. Now, some people would be fine having some kind of affection for that kind of God. But the God of Scripture is, is nothing like that. The God of Scripture is independently and eternally happy. He has existed in eternity past as God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit forever enjoying the Trinity. And yet he chooses out of the fullness of his heart, out of the overflow of love even, to make people. It is that eternal and independent God, that holy God, that righteous God, that sovereign God, that God who is splendid in beauty, that God who is a consuming fire in his holiness God, that God who is both patient and wrathful. It is that God that, that, that the Spirit communicates in our hearts to that we love and communicates to our hearts that he loves us see that god is the god of the cross that god is the god of the cross that god is is a god who did something shocking it is the god who extinguished his wrath on his own perfect son, whom he loved for eternity and delighted in as human. And he extinguishes the wrath that we deserve for our sins, pours it all out upon his son until his son has taken all of it and can cry out, it is finished. That God, who then resurrected his son, that God delights to call you whom he has justified his own children. That's the God whom the Spirit pours out his love into our hearts. The Spirit pours the Father's love into our hearts, following our justification, so that we know our hope is authentic. We know that he is our Father, that our confidence is genuine that the judge of the universe, that the executioner of the universe has declared me not guilty, that, that the judge of the universe has adopted me, that he has become my father. And why can I say my father? It is because of the spirit he has poured out into my Heart. I have no right of that. I can speak. I am a wicked man. I've done so many wicked things. I have no right to this hope. Why do I have faith in Christ? It is because of God's grace to me. And how do I know I have faith in Christ? Because the Father's love has been poured into my heart so that I know I call him my Father. And when I pray, it's Father. That's why I encourage you to pray. If you've been justified by faith, call him Father. You'll know that, that, that love. See, I know by God's grace that this is my gospel hope. This is my hope of glory, and it's not going to disappoint me. And that's the certainty you can have. That is, you have the certainty of hope through God's love being poured into your hearts if you've been justified by faith, that that hope of glorification is your hope. So what do you do? When you are most aware of your sin, when you are most aware that, 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 that deep down there's still this brokenness that, that remains, that you still, that you still part of you love what's wicked. 
who is God to you then? Is he someone that you hide from? Or is he someone that you run to? See, God's spirit convinces our hearts of God's love that if you've been justified, justified by faith, you run to him. Do you see God now as a giant waiting to stomp you or a shepherd looking for his lost sheep? Are you afraid that when you die, the doors of heaven are going to be locked to you? Or are you confident? Are you certain that they will be thrown open, thrown open and that you will be ushered into the kingdom of your Savior, Jesus Christ? See, when you know of him as shepherd, the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep, talking about the son, when, when, when you know that he's going to welcome you into his presence, that is because God's spirit has poured out his love for you into your hearts so that you know this hope isn't going to disappoint you. That this hope is the real thing. God the Spirit fills the hearts to overflowing of the justified with God the Father's love so that they are certain of this future glory. These have been some very uncertain times. And if you watch the news, you will hear one uncertainty after another. These are uncertain times. In uh, 1789, Benjamin Franklin famously wrote, In this world, nothing can be said to be certain except death and taxes. We still have to pay our taxes, even if they've been moved ahead from April 15th to, to July 15th, as some of, some of you know. We still have to pay taxes. We're very aware that we're all going to die. But there are more certainties in life than death and taxes. If you have been justified by faith in Jesus Christ, you can be certainty. You can be certain of peace with God. You can be certain that you stand in grace. You can be certain of the hope of glory, of transformation into Christ's own image. You can have the certainty that trials are purposeful, that what you're going through now, you can exalt in them because of what God's accomplishing in your life through them. And you can be certain that you won't be disappointed in hope because of what God has done in giving his love to you through his spirit. There is certainty for those who have been justified by faith. Let's pray. Now, Father, I thank you for your word, Lord. Um, Father, we, by God's grace, by your grace, have been thankful. And we are thankful. We are thankful for, 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 for the health care we have. We're, we're thankful for the many doctors and nurses among us, Lord. We, 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 we are faithful for how you provided for us. We're thankful for, 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 for how we live in America. We're thankful for how we can go to the stores. We're thankful for uh, just, just all of these blessings, Lord. But Father, and we do, we want, we want to be good examples for our kids. We want to demonstrate, we want to count our blessings, Lord. Uh, but Father, the, 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 the privileges and the riches of this passage, they, they, they are mind-blowing. Father, I ask that you would, would, would increase our capacity, increase our faith, Lord. Father, it is an amazing thing that we've been justified by faith, those of us who are right with you, Lord, but, but we need that faith to grow, Lord. I pray that we would understand these certainties more, Lord. Father, that we would have new and fresher smiles, that we would enjoy and blossom in this peace that we have with you, Lord. The, the, the world has turmoil, but we have peace with you. And, and, and we stand in grace. We are rooted through Christ in grace. And all that you have towards us, Father, is grace. So help us to appreciate that so much more, Father. Father, I pray that you would help us to, to anticipate this hope of glory, Lord. That, that we would long each day, either Christ returns or, or even that we would not fear death at all because of the certainty of glory that we have to look forward to, Lord. 
And I pray, Father, you would help us to be those who exalt it in trials because we see in real time that you are, are, are helping us to become steadfast, improving our character and making us even more certain that we indeed have that hope to look forward to, that we've been those who've been justified by faith. And help us, Lord, to experience in this, in the subjective way, Lord, not just that we know that you love us, Lord, but that your spirit would preach to us, would proclaim to us, would convince us and persuade us of, of the your love for us, that you indeed are our Father. Oh, we thank you so much, Father, for this sweet text. And we pray, Lord, that it would be transforming to the way that we experience the, 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 the uncertainties. And Father, there are those listening that 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 are uncertain, Lord. And, and they have a right to be uncertain because, because they have not been made right with you. Lord, I pray that you would break through their rebellion, break through their hard-heartedness, break through their self-reliance, smash through that so that they would see the, the, the glory of Christ and so that they would go to him and be justified by faith, Lord. That it would become crystal clear for them your your that the doom that they're facing, but the grace that you're offering, and that they would see and need Jesus more than anything. Please, Father, do that in your grace, Lord. I pray that for our little ones, Lord. I pray that for for, for our children. I pray that for, for those among us who have been have been putting on a facade for many years, but they haven't really understood this yet. I pray, Father, for any guests who are listening. In Jesus' name, amen.